piles of filthy cash. I can't help but listen to Fantastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10. They have a fun time at Pamtastics deep in the mission where you can laugh off. Here. Hey, Mutiny Radio listeners. Thanks for tuning in to Everyday Conversations on Race with Everyday People. Sima Lieberman is not here this morning, but she has created a an interview that she did last week. We have a mobile interview that she did with Howard and Tracy, and we're going to get to that in just a moment thanks so much for tuning in every monday from 10 to noon here at mutiny radio to listen to everyday conversations on race with everyday people with sima lieberman an amazing human being doing conversations on race because it's important and we need to talk about it all right with much less ado thank you again for tuning in and this is everyday conversations on race for everyday people Everyone. This is Simma Lieberman, the inclusionist with Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People, where we bring people together from different cultures and different backgrounds to have comfortable conversations about race and bring race to the people. If you have ever wanted to talk about race, but were afraid of saying the wrong thing or afraid of not being heard, then this podcast is for you. And if you want to hear more episodes, please go to www.raceconvo.com. RaceConvo.com. I am so happy today to have two extremely wonderful guests, Tracy Brown and Howard Ross, who are both colleagues and friends of mine. Tracy Brown and Howard Ross are both longtime thought leaders. They're authors and thought leaders in the field of diversity, in the field of inclusion, and in the field of leadership. So I am going to ask Howard and Tracy both to say a few words about themselves and say a little bit about your demographics since people can't see you. I see you, but they can't see you. So let's start with you, Tracy. Great. Thanks, Emma. So demographics, I'm black. I'm a baby boomer. I'm a business owner. I live in Texas, but I grew up in the Midwest, Missouri, Illinois, Kansas, And from the age of two, I have been engaged in conversations about race. So I consider myself a bridge builder and do a lot of work with organizations all over the United States related to all aspects of diversity and inclusion. And Howard. Yeah. Hi, Sam. Hi, Tracy. I've been for the past 35 years doing consulting in diversity and inclusion and organizational change, as you say, a lot of leadership work as well, particularly focusing on 
the unconscious bias and how it impacts people's behavior, and more recently on how we create uh, environments of belonging where people can really feel connected and part of either the workplace environment or the community environment that they live in. And my demographics, I'm a six foot five white Jewish guy in my late 60s. So I've been doing this for a long time. Howard, you mentioned belonging. Mm-hmm. Can you say something about belonging? And either one of you, could you, could you say, what, what do you mean by belonging? Well, you know, it's interesting, Simba, because my dear friend and, and mentor, Dr. Jeanetta Cole, has said for years that uh, diversity is being invited to the dance and inclusion is actually being asked to dance. But what I would add is belonging is, is actually having some of your music playing. In other words, when we're trying to create environments of belonging, what we mean are, are environments where it's not just that people who have been traditionally marginalized are welcomed into the environments that those of us who are in the dominant group have created. It's that they're actually part of creating those environments, that their voice, that their experience, that their culture influences the very envir- environments that they're a part of. And it creates a great, greater sense of home. And that usually means that we have some sense of shared destiny, that what happens to you could happen to me. Some shared of interdependent, some sense of interdependence that what happens to you is likely to impact what happens to me. Some sense of shared values, and I don't mean that that means we agree on everything, but at least we have some container of values that's similar. And usually, in environments like that, we find that we're more able to be ourselves, that we feel less protected, like we need to guard ourselves more. And how about you, Tracy? What do you think when you think about belonging? I like the concept of belonging. You know, the word itself that we create environments where everyone feels they belong, that they are valued. I like the concept of that. So, yeah, lots of successes. And I think that's why I'm so jazzed about it. So in a one-on-one situation, you know, success is because I'm able to navigate that and not get hooked most of the time. But in organizational settings, two things come to mind. About 20 years ago, I co-created a program called Dallas Dinner Table. And we have, and there are similar programs around the country, if not around the world. But in this particular one, we gather people in groups of eight to 10 all over the metropolitan area on the same night, having conversations in groups that have been assigned to each other that are multi-ethnic, multi-generational It has been fascinating because it's facilitated and guided to have conversations with people and have people come away saying, you know, OMG, I had no idea. Or, wow, I've met three people who are going to be friends who I never would have met because our circles are different, our races are different, our ages are different. So that really comes to mind that it's possible and it's meaningful for people. And of course, the people who sign up to do it are looking to have a conversation. And the other example that jumped to mind immediately was in a corporate setting, and it was specifically a dialogue about race and racism and race relations because they were in that company having some challenges. And this was about eight years ago, seven or eight years ago. And I was able to work with them for a day with a specific group of people who were then going to be champions and facilitating conversations within the organization. And six months later, they had really transformed the environment and people were no longer afraid to talk about race. They were willing to own their own story and experience 
and realized that their experience was not the same as everyone else's. So there were fewer assumptions being made. And the fear factor, there's a huge fear factor about talking about this subject because people don't want to say the wrong thing. So those are just a couple of examples that came to mind immediately. How about you, Howard? Yeah, well, I would say hundreds. I mean, hundreds of conversations that have, I think, led to positive results. You know, this is what we do on a regular basis. And and I do think that I think with the, the last point that Tracy made is the most important one, which is that people are afraid of this conversation. And we don't. I remember when Eric Holder said, you know, a number of years ago, he said, Americans are just afraid of talking. We're cowards when it comes to talking about race. And I, I think that that's true. And I think that I think that that there's some responsibility for that on both sides of the conversation, both people who are diversity advocates and also people who are resistant resistant to diversity, put up barriers of our own to really having open and honest conversation. On the part of people who are resistant, of course, there's the notion that if I don't see the impact of race, if it doesn't affect me, then it must not be there or it must be it must be overly you know, generated or it must be race baiting or these other kinds of things. Because if I see it, it must not exist. And I think we know better than most of us if we just take a moment and a rational moment. We know that if you're in a non-dominant group, you're going to see the effects of that identity more than if you're in a dominant group. As a white man, for example, I don't have to pay a lot of attention to race if I don't want to, other than to keep myself out of trouble. But a person of color can't live in this country without being very aware of race or most people of color on an ongoing basis to know where the traps are, where the, where the trap doors are that I might fall through or the rocks that I might stumble over or the person who's out to get me. I think from the other side, sometimes as diversity advocates, we come across as blaming and shaming people and beating up on them when they're really, in a lot of cases, truly are ignorant about their behavior and ignorant even about some of their belief systems. And so we put them on the defensive and expect them to change more quickly than is reasonable to expect the human being to change. And as a result, the whole conversation of diversity is perceived as an attack on them and they get defensive and protective. And, and so I think from both sides, we have to have a deeper appreciation of how challenging it is for us to talk about these issues and, and find constructive models like, like some of the ones that Tracy was just talking about, like the community model she was just talking about, you know, constructive models like that to, to help build relationships, which then the conversations can occur in because difficult relationships only occur when people have trust. Yeah, I, you know, I think that you're right. And I think what you're saying is, is really important. I mean, you bring up several, several points. One is that people, sometimes people are afraid. So then the question is, why are they afraid? But the other thing is that when you have that, do people change by shaming and blaming? Mm-hmm. So why are people afraid? I think uh, I'll jump in first this time. I mean, I think that we're afraid because we see the ramifications of how the conversation can go wrong. Um, we see that if we if we're of color, for example, that the source of the conversation, our reaction to the conversation can then be used to victimize us even more. Oh, you're one of those people. You're one of those race people. Or what was it when we were growing up, Tracy, they called it uppity, right? But now, <laughs> they have new language now. But, you know, but you're, you know, all of a sudden you get associated with that. And if people if people have a strong conversation about that, that can be used to hurt you either in a either in a social setting or in a business setting. So I think that the, the fear is understandable. And I forget, what was the second part of the question, Simi? You, you asked about the fear. And then, shame and blame. Does that? Oh, yeah, shame and blame. Yeah. And, and look, we know that guilt and shame are not constructive motivators of human behavior. I mean, this is a lot of the work that Brene Brown is talking about, of course. What shame and guilt do is they cause us to 
that causes to contract. I mean, anybody who's listening, if you think of somebody in your life who makes you feel guilty, do you want to be around them more or less? I mean, for most of us, it's less. There's a difference between guilt and shame versus responsibility. We want people to take responsibility for their behavior. So when we say don't shame or, or guilt them into something, it's not to say don't hold people accountable. It's just say focus on responsibility. Not so much you're a terrible person because you believe this, but more what are you going to do to move this conversation forward in a positive direction? And that gives people something to do with their energy around it. Now, I'm not talking, of course, about the David Dukes or Richard Spencers of the world. We're never going to reach those folks, and we've got to keep them limited. But I'm talking, I'm talking about the larger percentage of people who don't even realize how much of their decision-making is given by unconscious patterns and bad and the attitudes that they have about people who are different from them. So what do you think, Trace? I don't know that I have anything to add about the blame and shame. I think we all know that even if we had family members who used that on us when we were children or young, that for long-term shifts, real transformation, that's not the way to go. So a phrase that I have used a lot over the last couple of decades in organizations and trying to help people understand they they don't want to always be the enforcer, right? That, oh, if I'm a champion for diversity, then I need to catch everybody who does anything wrong and shine a spotlight on them. And so the question I often will ask is, do you want to be a diversity cop or do you want to be a diversity coach? That's and a great that's, question. You know, wow. that's, and then I, I will help them understand that there are times when you need to speak directly and enforce a policy. But really, those are the exceptions. Those are the exceptions. It's very few times when someone, as Howard just said, is intentionally you know, creating a hostile or unsafe environment. And so in that case, every time something happens, I have an opportunity to coach you about a better way to look at that or give you more information that might help you navigate that situation or work with that person differently. So that question, uh, well, what's your intention? Is your intention to be a diversity cop or a diversity coach? It often will make people to at least slow down enough to think, how would I do this? What would I say? What system would I set up? if I wanted to coach people into self-responsibility for change and transformation compared to what behavior or what system would I set up if what I really wanted to do was collect, make a collection of everything that anyone could do wrong and highlight that. Yeah, you know, Tracy, but just, I, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, I, the way I sometimes say it, even as facilitators, even as people who are leading these conversations, I think we have to distinguish at times between the role yes. of advocate versus the role of change agent. You know, as an advocate, you know, I might march in the Black Lives Matter movement or in the March for Our Lives or in the Women's March. You know, I'm an advocate when I'm doing there, and I have very strong points of view politically, which I post in social media or I write about at different times. But when I'm facilitating a group in a room, I have a different role. It's not my job to be the advocate, because if I'm the advocate in the room, I'm taking sides already. I'm inside of the system, and it makes it very hard for me to help the system heal itself. 
So my job in the room as a facilitator is to honor all of the conversations in the room and to remove my personal beliefs or not remove it, but put it to the side and be able to hold space so that other people can really have honest conversations. And I think like in any other case, if anybody is doing any kind of a mediation, for example, if you were if you were at odds with your spouse and you know you were going into a mediation session and the person who was mediating was your spouse's best friend, you wouldn't feel comfortable that you were safe to have the conversation as you know, you wouldn't likely feel comfortable. So I think that this is one of the challenges that we face is being able to compartmentalize some of our views and, and, and express them at the appropriate time. Wow. You both, what the two of you said is very profound for me and really impacts me because I really like, do you want to be a diversity cop or a diversity coach? Yeah, me too. <laughs> that is so great. And then Howard, I like the way that you talked about the difference because for me, that was a little bit drove me a little bit like sometimes a little bit nuts thinking about, okay, I've got my corporate self where I am more, I mean, more neutral in terms of how I talk to people. But then there's that social justice part of me, especially these days where I'm very opinionated, where I really want to see change and I'm working for change. And sometimes for me, it was like, well, who am I? How does this all work? And I really like, I, you just made me feel a lot more comfortable with myself. Good. One of my missions in life. That's good. Well, no, <laughs> really, you just, you just helped me like clarify. All right. <laughs> well, we're, we're seeing a lot of people getting fired these days. At what point should someone be fired? And at what point should they be educated? So could you comment on that? And how do we educate people? Well, you I mean, obviously, we've seen the example this past week of Megyn Kelly and, you know, and, and we know there are lots of other people around. I mean, you know, I mean, I have to say, I guess to preface my comments to say that I am a fierce proponent of free speech. I, you know, part of it is that in my life experience of being a social justice warrior for now over 50 years, most of the time when free speech is, is uh, suppressed, it's it's people who are looking for change in society who are suppressing it. And so, I mean, who are being suppressed. And so that usually is people from the liberal or progressive side. So just for, for plain self-interest, I try to tell people, if you suppress their free speech, you make it easier for them to suppress our free speech. You know, for me, for me, the, it's hard to determine sometimes, but the real criteria, there are two real criteria. One is, what's the discernible intent? In other words, is this a mean-spirited comment or a callous comment, something where people are clearly not, don't care or are demonstrating lack of interest in the, the well-being or the rights of certain people versus somebody who's ignorant? versus somebody who says something without even realizing how offensive it is. And then the second is, is this something that this person has demonstrated over time, or is it something that's kind of an individual circumstance? So Deming, I, you know, I get a chance to, to study with Edwards Deming when he was in his 90s, great quality guru. And he used to create the distinction between special case and common case circumstances. And he used to say, for example, that you know you have a special case circumstance is one where if something happens, it's an anomaly to the system. So, you know, let's take the Starbucks example. You know, the incident that happened at Starbucks, it's you know, a terrible incident that happened at the Philadelphia store, but it does not appear that, it's, that the Starbucks system is designed to produce that result. And no system of quarter of a million people can be completely immune from individual people making a mistake. It's just not realistic. Versus a, a common case circumstance is when a system is regularly producing or is designed to produce a particular behavior. So if you look at Megyn Kelly, for example, I would say, 
you know, here you have somebody who's made these gaffes numerous times in the past. You know, she did the thing with the black Santa Claus and it was the black Jesus. And then there's this and there are four or five other examples. You know, you put her on TV in the morning. It's it's it was only a matter of time before she do another one because she demonstrated so many times in the past that she'd done this. So so for me, the shame is not on her as much as it's on them. What did they expect? You know, they took a big name person because they thought it would draw it would draw attention, and and you get what you get with her. As opposed to, for example, if you remember the thing that happened with oh my goodness, what's his name, Juan Williams, when he was on NPR and he made the comment, he made the comment. You know, I have to acknowledge that when I'm on an airplane, and mind you, this was in 2003, maybe, or something like that, or 2002. Yeah, it was right after 9-11. He said, I have to acknowledge that when I see somebody get on the plane and they're wearing Muslim clothing, it I get a little frightened. You know, and then now he said, I know I shouldn't. too. I know I shouldn't. Exactly. Now, now to, for me, that seemed like a ridiculous thing to fire him for. It felt it felt to me like that could have been much more used as an opportunity to open up dialogue because he was speaking something the half of America was feeling at that time, right or wrong. And to fire somebody that that's where I think we get into the excessive political correctness and and, you know, watching people's speech, becoming the speech police and that I, can really shut down dialogue in our society. Yeah, I was really with NPR after that. Tracy, how about you? I couldn't agree more. There is a line. So when I work with organizations and they say, we're going to have, there is a line. So when I work with organizations and they say, we're going to have, or we have, or we intend to have a zero tolerance policy. I always say, oh, wait, wait, wait. Okay. So what does that mean to you? And then I try to give them some examples to let them know that the intent they want, which is to really clearly make employees or members of the organization understand that the values of the organization are for respect and for, you know, creating a safe environment and all of that. And zero tolerance as a phrase isn't appropriate because then you take away your opportunity to discern what is the appropriate action here? Either that or you follow your zero tolerance policy and then you end up having to terminate people for things that would be best handled a different way. So, but I, I don't think some of that is just a distinction between terminating them, removing them or educating I think there's different levels of educating. So do you educate that individual or there are times when you need to educate the entire workforce or the entire group. But I also see a lot of the times when people are terminated, I find myself saying, oh, I wish they hadn't fired that person because now there's no way to hold them accountable for changing their behavior. Because especially with celebrities or high-level executives in corporations, because of their experience and or their celebrity, somebody else is going to scoop them up and pay them a lot of money. And if they had stayed where they made the mistake or caused the problem, that organization could hold them accountable for shifting their beliefs, changing, or at least changing their behaviors, even if their beliefs don't change, and force them to behave differently and understand why that's not acceptable, whatever it is they did or said. And so for me, the big question always becomes about 
the accountability for improved behavior down the line. I think that's really valuable. I think it's a really valuable distinction. I think that, you know, the question is, are we complaining about a problem or are we moving to solutions? And I think with Tracy's, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more, Tracy. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It becomes kind of like a game of whack-a-mole, you know, yes. fire yes. somebody, then somebody else comes up. And I think that sometimes some of these people, and a lot of them tend to be white, but not always, really that maybe makes them feel good. Okay, yeah, we got rid of that person. But how is that helping the situation? How is that created? How is that creating change? Yeah, so if I could, yeah, I think if I could just add one thing about this, I think I think that that this is really important. Not only thinking about it from an organizational standpoint, but even a societal standpoint, you know, is that we're so complaint oriented and and so not solution oriented in the way we approach some of these things, and that contributes to the problem. So I want to ask. I guess Tracy went to get something. So Howard, mm-hmm. I want to ask you this. As as a white person, as a Jewish person, as as a man, what have you been your challenges in terms of having conversations about race? Because well, all three of us are perfect now, but we weren't always perfect. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, I don't. I never claim that. I'm, I'm really clear. One, I think one of the one of the things that I, I I found is most important is to is to share my own blind spots with people. You know, and they come up regularly. You know, I just recently I was I was out at the Forum for Workplace Inclusion last spring uh, in uh, Minneapolis and with my wife Leslie and I was also my business partner and and one of our colleagues, Cook Ross. And uh, we were coming back. We flew back to DCA to Washington National Airport, and we kind of come up the aisle to the main hallway and walk out in the main hallway. And there, standing right in front of me, twenty feet in front of me, is Martin Luther King III, Dr. King's son. And I had sort of a fanboy moment, I have to admit. And, and so I went over to him, and and you know, he couldn't have been more gracious. And I thanked him, as I'm sure millions have, for his the role that his father played in my life and for the great work that he's done in carrying the torch. And and uh, he he you know agreed to take a picture with us. He, he was with his wife and another younger woman. And we took a picture and we went home. And the next day, somebody was over our house. I said, yeah, we met, you know, Martin Luther King III and his wife and his assistant. And, and Leslie says to me, she wasn't his assistant. She was his chief of staff. And, and I had to stop and say to myself, if that was a man, would I have assumed that it was his assistant? Or might I have thought maybe it was his lawyer or something else? Now, I don't know whether that's true or not, but I suspect it probably, the gender in that case, did impact me. And I could find other examples where I made assumptions about race or that were influenced by race. I'm sure each of you can as well. I think that we have to acknowledge that and be willing to. And I think when we do that, it makes it much easier for us to have conversations with other people because we're acknowledging our own blind spots. I mean, I've never had an issue as a white man doing the work because from the beginning of my life, you know, coming from a family of Holocaust victims, it was very clear to me that creating a sense of healthy diversity in the world and creating safety for people who are different is very real. It's not some imagined phenomenon in my life. It's something that killed my my ancestors. And so for me, the notion that this is only for you know, people of color is an absurd notion because we all have to live in this world together. We have to create a world of inclusion for everybody. And now it's even exacerbated by the fact that I've got that four of my six grandchildren are of mixed race. So, so I don't have any issue with that. Some people do, you know, some people wonder why a white guy would be doing this. And, and even in the inclusion community, sometimes I don't feel a full sense of belonging because there's some people who, you know, who still kind of relate to me as the white guy. And, you know, I've dealt with people who were jealous of the fact that I was successful and how come the white guy is, you know, all this kind of stuff. But, you know, frankly, 
that's not what I determine my behavior on. I determine my behavior on what my heart tells me I need to be working on and what my mission is in the world. And people will react the way they react. Well, Howard, thank you so much for sharing that. See, I had no idea that you ever felt like you didn't belong. So thank you. Right. Tracy, how about you? I was asking about what have been, what have been your challenges uh, in having these conversations as a black woman? Well, I started having these conversations at the age of four. <laughs> So at least at, at a level that I could remember. And so facilitating your preschool, were you, Tracy? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The advantage of being a part of a black family that had been that was in a pre- previously predominantly white or previously all white neighborhood. So even with that, yeah, there are still lots of times along the the way that I've put my foot in my mouth or I've been uncomfortable or I realized afterwards I wasn't as sensitive to how I might be coming across. But what jumps to mind in this moment is that one of the most powerful insights and ahas that I had around my own ignorance was that, I don't know, this is, you know, probably almost 40 years ago, but when I really got it, that white people didn't think about race all the time the way that black people did and had to in order to survive and that literally many of the things that were done or words that were spoken that were offensive or insensitive or inappropriate that that really white people had no clue that they were being insensitive or inappropriate And it blew my mind. I mean, literally, it took me about a year to fully grasp what that meant. And it shifted me to be able to be more of an educator than an enforcer. But even though that was 30 plus years ago when I really finally got it, it still surprises me. And even this year... I've had example after example that reminds me of this. Let me give you the example, and then I'll tell you how I'm reminded that I could say the wrong thing easily. So I wore my hair in locks for 12 years, and my locks were long, and I was used to people being curious about that. And People, for the most part, have been appropriately curious and have questions, and that's great. Six months ago, I cut my locks off, and so I'm wearing my hair very, very, very short, close to my head, very little hair. And I, even saying this out loud, I can feel like I am shocked at how many white people come up to me and put their hands in my head, on my head, affectionately. Oh, your hair, you know, I'm like, and every time it makes me cringe. Even people who I, I know that they are on their journey. I know that there are many of them who are advocates about race or sexual orientation or interfaith and that they would not know how offensive it would be to touch my hair or my head as you know and not ask question just go to touch and so there have been a couple of times when I have blurted out oh no you didn't touch my hair 
with a little bit of attitude and then seeing their reaction going, oh, they don't know that that really is inappropriate. Or I've had to just close my eyes and take a deep breath and count to 10 so I could come back and say, you may not be aware that we've got a good relationship and I know your intention is good, but putting your hands in on the head or in the hair of a black woman is really something you don't want to do ever again to anyone. Yeah. So the conversations come up at the most unexpected time. And that's what I'm reminded of that. I won't always respond the way that I'd love to respond as an expert on diversity and inclusion when it's me personally, or when it's an issue or concern that I have a heart connection to. Yeah, you know, and I think, you know, for me, you know, I think that, like I asked you both, what, what was your challenges? For me, sometimes it's, I would rather talk to somebody who really doesn't know than somebody who thinks that they know. Because if I'm talking to a white person that really doesn't know, I'm going to have a conversation. I'm going to find some connection. They're not going to tell me how, oh, I went out with a black guy, so therefore I'm not racist or whatever, you know, whatever. And it's easier for me. But the other thing, too, as, as a white person who's also Jewish, there's another challenge because there's also, and, and I tell people, and they go, well, you know, I'm Jewish and I understand depression. I said, no, you understand your oppression, but maybe you don't over understand or you understand your discrimination. And at the same time, I said, let's put it this way. Who could get a cab at night in New York? You know, you or a black person. So, you know, I have to point out. So so sometimes that's a challenge because you have to acknowledge. I think it's really important to acknowledge other people's issues around discrimination and what they've been through. And at the same time, for me, say, okay, and then look at this also. Yeah, I mean, I I think that, you know, look, I I think, you know, Tracy's point and the point that you're making about people not being able to understand the lived experience of others is, is I think, at the core of this. You know, Tracy, when you were talking about, you know, people just not getting what it's like, I, you know, I've had conversations a number of times recently with people about entitlement and white privilege. And, you know, when people hear those terms, they hear, hear about white entitlement or white privilege or in some cases, white male privilege, you know, they think what it means, you're a bad person because you have privilege. They don't get the systemic aspect of it. But from a systemic standpoint, I'll often have the conversation. I'll say to people, you know, I've got four sons, the youngest of whom is 24 years old. They all got their driver's licenses. And I never once had to have a single moment of thought to have a conversation with them about driving while white and what to do if a police officer stopped you and how race might play a role in how you're treated by that police officer. And yet virtually every African-American friend I have who has children of that age have had that conversation. And it's such a prevalent conversation in the black community that the NAACP actually produces a booklet, How to Talk to Your Kids About Driving While Black. That's privilege. The fact that I didn't have that conversation is privilege. And the fact that I don't realize that black Parents have to have that conversation and that every time their child goes out at night, they worry about things like that, where I still worry about, you know, especially when they were just starting to drive, worry about them getting into accidents or something like that. 
But I never had to worry about them getting killed by a police officer because they were white or Jewish in, my, in our particular case. And so I, I do think that it's those deeper levels of conversation and, and being able to understand the lived experience of each other that are so important here. But I also don't want us to leave the impression in this conversation that that's singularly something that white people have to pay attention to. Because I think when you bring up, Sima, the different attitude that folks might have around anti-Semitism or that or that Latinos have about race versus the way African-Americans feel about race, or that Asians have about race rather than the way Latinos and African-Americans and white people feel about race. We all need to do a better job of understanding each other. This past weekend after the synagogue shooting, I had a number of conversations with people about the subtle the subtle way that that anti-Semitism contributes to being an outsider in the society, even while Jews are financially more successful, have lots of opportunities in the academy and all these kinds of things, that there still is on a very subtle level, but nonetheless very real, this sense of, you know, who am I dealing with that gets exacerbated when things happen like what happened this weekend. Yeah. And that is you're reminded that that you're still as a white person in this society, as a white Jewish person in this society, have one foot on the station and one foot on the train. Yeah, and if you're a and, and you know, and if you're a black Jewish person, then you that's have a whole other dynamic. Lot of issues because there's a lot of you know there's a lot of Jews of color that have to deal with a lot of those issues on so many different yeah. levels. Tracy, yeah. yeah, and the thing that I was going to add, and it's funny how our energy is kind of in the same place. I was thinking about. The one thing that hasn't come up in our responses, and it is a challenge for me on, around this, on my, I, I moderate a Facebook group called What is Mine to Do? And it's What is Mine to Do to Eliminate or Reduce Race-Based Hatred and Violence. And I am constantly challenging myself to look beyond Black and White. And to bring in the experience of every racial and ethnic group in our world. And how do we need to, what can we learn? What can I learn that will help me understand better the experience that someone who is a person of color, but they're not black? They're, you know, from a different group because I don't, there's a lot I don't know. And so how do I model for everyone who participates in the page, really looking out for information and education and being responsive when different things happen in our world that could have an impact or have have a negative impact, especially, and sharing the history, the very powerful and rich history of other racial and ethnic groups that often get overlooked because we talk about race and we, you know, gravitate to the black-white continuum. Well, and two questions. One is, why is that? And what, and I'm going to assume that both of you have a lot of people in your life from a lot of different cultures, not just black and not white, right? Right. And so what kind of, so do you also have these kind of conversations with those people too? Well, yes. And the why is that is easy. The why is that is because the black white conflict, the black white continuum, the black white, you know, quote unquote issue has been the most prevalent. And in some ways, historically in the United States, at least, has laid a foundation 
economic, psychological, social has laid such a foundation about how we treat race and what we believe about race. And so, and it's also the conversation that is, has been historically most often avoided. So that's the why, I mean, that's what we gravitate toward, but we live in a society, I live in a state that is majority people of color and there are other states like that. And so, you know, black folks are not the only people of color and many, many, many more quote unquote white people are recognizing that they're not pure white. <laughs> they live a, light, a life under the, the social structure of being quote unquote white, but with all of the rush for people to get their, their DNA to find their ancestry over the last few years, people are more and more surprised at how mixed they are and that they, they have African blood in their ancestry. So this conversation makes sense, but we, it's not the only yeah. one. Yeah, I mean, I, I would I would agree with you completely, and, and I think that the other thing is that if we if we look at it, you know, really, it's only in the last couple of generations that the percentage of Latinos and Asians has risen to the numbers it's risen because those are the two fastest growing populations that we have among racial groups. And when I was growing up, the conversation was really about white people and black people, and it has been for most of our country's history. And so, as a result of that, you know, we've got these new dimensions. Now, one of the one of the challenges that happens as a result of that is because we cut our teeth on conversations about race between white people and black people, we often make the mistake of applying the same lens to the dynamics, let's say the Hispanics or Latinos deal with or that Asians deal with. And, it, and they're different. There's a different quality to it. There's a different quality having been immigrants versus being brought here as slaves. There's a different quality because of the success that, that's been allowed to happen in those communities rather than other communities. The fact that, for example, that so many Asians came here as immigrants, in some cases coming from very high positions in the societies that they left. Or, or um, you know, for example, all the Vietnamese immigrants who came here, who came from people who were government leaders or professionals who, who left as a result of, of us losing that war, came in at a very different place than people who were brought here in chains and were denied education and were denied opportunity and even denied to allow to read for generation after generation before they weren't. And so, and so as a result of that, the gap between white performance and black performance in this society is by far the largest gap of, of all the racial gaps. And therefore, it makes sense that that would be the thing that would occupy most of our attention. You know, I just had somebody, somebody's been on my show a couple of times, and actually he's going to co-host with me sometimes. His name is Patrick Tindani. He's from Ghana. And he talks about the difference of, he's 35. He's also gay, and he had to leave Ghana because he's gay. And he talked about, though, coming to the United States, and he said that there's no way that he could, I mean, he has to deal with racism, but he said there's no way that he could really understand the trauma that African-American people have been here been through in the United States having all these like generations of, of slavery and generations of dealing with the kind of racism that, that they've had to deal with since in Ghana, he said, you know, most everybody's black. Right. Yeah. I have a friend, I have a good friend who, who comes from Ghana actually. And he, he talks about this all the time. And John is coal black. I mean, very, very dark skinned man came to this country as a student, but his father was seven generations descended from tribal royalty and is now a government and business leader. And he said he grew up as a prince. 
You know, he didn't grow up as somebody who was lacking anything. He grew up in the aristocracy in his country and then came to this country. And so, so whatever racism he deals with doesn't hit the inside. It doesn't, it, he doesn't suffer from post-traumatic slave syndrome, as Joy DeGruy calls it, or, or some of these internalized patterns of bias. And I've noticed over the years that I've known him for many years, the way he deals with racism is quite different. It's like, you know, fool. I mean, it's a, he doesn't, it, it doesn't get internalized. I mean, he might get angry about it, but he, it never gets internalized. He just thinks people who, treat, who are racist are idiots. And because he comes from a place where black people occupied the highest levels of government, the highest levels of business, the highest levels of science, the highest levels of the academy. And I think that's very different to somebody who grows up in the United States, where you're always the other, where you're always less than, where you don't see people like yourself very often in senior leadership roles. And you begin to, and be, people understandably begin to internalize some of that bias and start to think maybe there's something, not even think, but it's more of feeling, an unconscious feeling, there's something insufficient about me for who I am. You know, when, when I was on Michelle's show, you were at, at the studio when I was at, when we used to record a coffee. She's now at CBS, so she's doing really well. But we had a sh- I did a show on Asians in the race convo. It was a really great conversation. I'm going to do it again on, on this show. I think it really is important to be able to hear other people's experiences because some people don't realize that everybody's experience is different and that different cultures, that people experience racism and some of it is the same, but then some of it is also different. Well, and we know that we have the intersectionality that's always happening. So even with within a given ethnic or racial identity group, there are some commonalities and some things to expect, but there are a lot of things that will be different based on the overlay or the intersection of sexual orientation, especially the intersection of socioeconomic experience and status, you know, age, of course, because a lot of folks who are in their 20s, my goddaughter is 23, and, you know, the group of, of young adults that she grew up with you know, they've had a very, very different experience than the folks in my generation based on race. And so it's so complex. That's part of what makes it difficult. But for me, that's part of what makes it so fascinating. Mm-hmm. I could talk about this forever. And I know I want to have you two back on because now it's just, I have this show. I'm going to have like a lot of repeat guests. <laughs> but I think that it's important to address, at least to touch on it, because it's, it's so deep, about what's been happening the last couple of weeks. That first, I mean, things are always happening. I mean, well, people of color always, you know, it's kind of like this constant thing about getting the police called for, like, drinking water or, or breathing. But also the fact that, like, at Kroger's uh, last week, two black people were killed because they were black. Then we have all the bombings, I mean, attempted bombings. And then we have the massacre at the synagogue. So I want to know, what are your thoughts on that? And also, what can we do so that we could start, so we can work towards eliminating this kind of hatred? Well, wow. What are my thoughts about that? I mean, it was a horrific weekend, obviously, for all of us. And I think that, you know, I think that there's a collective shock throughout the country and how to deal with this. And it was also so sad to see how we immediately, people immediately got into their, you know, defensiveness about the obvious, which is that the language of our 
the language of, of our politics has gotten to the point where it's beyond. It's one thing to, it's one, I, you know, I just, I just posted a blog about this and, and it's one thing to say, go protest. It's one thing to say, you know, be confronting or whatever else. It's something else entirely to say, punch the guy, you know, stomp on him to extol the virtues of body slamming reporters. And I think we have a real challenge right now in that the greatest proponent of hate speak in our society is the president of the United States. And he justifies this behavior. I'm not suggesting that he wanted people to do this or he told people to do this. But when you have unbalanced people out there who can go into their Walmart and buy an AK-47 and you hear the president of the United States giving justification for violent behavior, it makes it one step closer for us to have this happen. So I think we have to, obviously, we all have to to tone down our rhetoric, but particularly the person who's got the loudest voice in our society needs to show some leadership and to and to recognize that these kinds of things are, are unacceptable. And and to to come out just three days after or two days after the CNN received pipe bombs and again be talking about the press as the enemy of the people. That's different than that's different than I disagree with them. I don't think they're reporting fairly. I don't like their bias. There are all kinds of ways you can say what he's trying to say, but that's not what he's trying to do. The bottom line is that Donald Trump's entire political career is built on building fear and loathing between people. That's what he that's what he saw was there. That's what that's the tsunami wave he decided to ride, and that's where he falls back every time after he reads his prepared statements. Crazy. What I think, what my thoughts have been, similar to what my thoughts often are when we have multiple events, because I know this is happening, these kinds of things are happening every day somewhere. We just only hear about the really big ones, right? And so there is a part of my thinking process that, you know, is I'm tired, right? The The fatigue of being hit over and over and over. But the biggest, most commanding thought is that we as a society, we as a society are be, being given an opportunity. So I go back to this, this kind of the spiritual foundation of life itself and really see it as a choice. As a society, as a nation, are we going to choose evil and hatred and death and anger are we going to say okay we finally have had enough and we are going to live our lives and build a country where all of this diversity is accepted as a part of who we are and we can do that in unity and harmony and move toward a greater good. So my thoughts, you know, kind of go from that one extreme of, oh, here we go again, to it's a call for responsibility. It's a call for prayer. It's a call for action toward what we want instead of against what we think is wrong, which just generates more of that. And I and the how do we do it? I think it does call for people of what I think of as having the spiritual imperative for unity and harmony. It calls for us to really say, okay, this isn't enough. We have to do whatever we have to do that comes from a place of building love and respect, not duplicating the anger, the disrespect, and the death, the killing. Other than that, and the big picture, you know, I don't know what the specifics are, 
we vote for leaders as Howard just described, you know, are we going to hold our leaders accountable? Are we going to hold Congress accountable? Are we going to hold the Supreme Court? Well, they're appointed. We don't elect them. But are we going to hold the people we elect accountable for leading from a different place of collaboration, of communication, of mm-hmm. connection, of represent true representation of the majority of people? Or are we going to continue to elect people? Or in our organizations, are we going to continue to reward leaders who are divisive and who are judgmental and who push competition more than collaboration or not. Yeah, look, I think I think that the one thing that's really important for us to recognize is that this didn't just sort of organically develop. This nastification of American politics did not just naturally organically develop. This was a defined strategy. I mean, in you know, in 1978, Newt Gingrich burst upon the scene as a, as a professor that when as a college professor telling a gathering of young Republicans, one of the great problems we have in the Republican Party is that we don't encourage you to be nasty. We encourage you to be neat, obedient, loyal, and faithful to all those Boy Scout words, which are great around the campfire but a lousy in politics. And then in 1990, when he became majority whip, he actually had his PAC send out a list of words to use to describe Democrats to demonize them. Decay, failure, collapse, deeper, urgent, destructive, destroy, pathetic, liars, liberals, unionizing, you know. And so this was a very conscious strategy on the part of the Gingrich-led Republican Party to put nastiness into American politics because they were smart enough to know that people don't vote rationally. We vote viscerally. And if you can make people, if you can demonize the enemy and make yourself look strong by demonizing the enemy, then people will gravitate towards you. Now, that, that puts people on the other side in a very interesting position, because if we do, as Michelle Obama said, which is just, you know, when they go low, we go high, it doesn't stop them from doing what they're doing. And what they're doing actually does trigger those old brain responses. So so finding the, the way to hold on to our own moral footing while at the same time dealing with that is a real significant challenge. And it's one that we're going to have to take on in a much more sophisticated way than we have. Wow. This has been such an amazing conversation. And I love talking to the two of you. And this is, you know, I guess the only way I could get have long conversations, both of you, is to just have you back on the show. Fair enough. Because I know I know how busy everybody is. And I want to ask both of you if it's one thing that one point that you want to make that you want to share with people and also how do people reach you? How do people get in contact with you? Good, Tracy. Okay, so Tracy, go. you go first. How do people get in contact with you? One point, how do people get in contact with you? And if you have any books you want people to buy. Easiest way for people to get in touch with me or to find out more is to go to tracybrown.com, and that's T-R-A-C-Y Brown. Dot com. No E's, no I's. And you can also find out about books and programs there. The one point that I would want to close with and make sure it got stated is that each one of us is a valuable contribution to shift, to change, and to transformation in the world. And I just want everybody to step into that in their own lives, and the ripple effect will change our collective lives. Thanks, Howard. Yeah, for me, I think that the easiest way to reach me right now is at Howard at Udarta, U-D-A-R-T-A dot com, or Howard at Howard dot Ross at CookRoss dot com, either way. Um, I think I would say two things. I think the first is, 
you know, I know that I felt this weekend probably a greater sense of hopelessness and helplessness than I felt in a long time. And there's a part of me at times like that, and I'm sure that there's a part of, our, of many of our listeners who feel like I'm just sick and tired of politics. I want to put it away and, and just ignore it. But I realized, you know, when I even have that thought that that's an act of privilege, that walking away from politics is an act of privilege. Walking away from being a participant in our democracy is an act of privilege because there are people who don't have the accessibility to influence people. There are people who don't have the accessibility to get the message out there who are more deeply affected by what's going on in our society today. People of low income, people of marginalized groups, whether that's racially marginalized or LGBTQ people or women. You know, we didn't even get a chance to talk about the whole misogynistic aspect of society today. And so I think we have to stay engaged, but at the same time, we have to take care of ourselves. And then the second thing is vote. You know, we have this election coming up next week, and it's shocking how few Americans vote. We have to get out and vote. We have to use the mechanism that we have in front of us. Even with all the challenges we have with voter suppression and all of that kind of stuff, we still have to vote. Yeah, and people don't realize, too, that sometimes like voting impacts just minimum wage, rent. That's right. Climate, so many different things. This has been such a great show. Everybody, you've been listening to Sima Lieberman, The Inclusionist, with Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People. If you like what you heard today, then please go to www.raceconvo, convo like conversation, raceconvo.com and listen to more episodes. If you really, really like what you heard today, then please share this show and share my link and share the show with all of your friends, colleagues, and anybody you ever met in the whole wide world. And if you really, really, really like our show and you want to see us continue because we run the show on donations, please go to www.raceconvo and make a small donation. No donation is too small. Large donations are cool too. But Sima, and you could hit me up at Sima at SimaLieberman.com or on Twitter at The Inclusionist. Thank you so much. And until next time, Sima, The Inclusionist, Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People, signing. Each 
what y'all think I'd make it, don't forget me, cats. Please be fair one night with you and I'll be your teddy bear. Love me, tender uncle, your gold mine is home. There's a boy in the States who gives me fits. His name is Tricky Man, he's got hits. When I get out, he's got to go. I'll chase him back to his TV show. I say, uh, move over, little dog. The big dog is moving back in. I say, uh, yes, I am. The sun brings up another day
chamoto moto penzi nipige buso chamoto moto kwa tukipenda nao tulilala pamoja tukizungumza cha siri siri buso cha siri 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 penzi nipige buso chamoto moto tulipo kwa tukipenda nao tulilala pamoja tukizungumza Moto moto penzi nipige buso cha kimoto moto tulipo kwa tukipenda na tulilala pamoja tukizungumza siri siri penzi nipige buso cha siri siri cha kimoyo moyo penzi nipige buso cha kimoyo moyo tulipo kwa tukipenda na tulilala pamoja tukizungumza sikamao leo siku wajana sikamao leo Kisaki moto moto penzi nipige buso cha faya faya tulipokuwa tukipenda na tulilala pamoja tukizungumza Kisaki moto moto penzi nipige buso cha kimoto moto tulipokuwa tukipenda na tulilala pamoja tukizungumza Kis cha moto moto penzi nipige buso cha moto moto Watu kipenda na watu lilala pamoja tukizungumza Penzi nipige buso cha moto moto Kis cha faya faya Watu kipenda na watu lilala pamoja tukizungumza Tumoto Kis cha kimoto moto Watu kipenda na watu lilala mara tukizungumza Chamoto moto mpenzi nipige buso chamoto moto Kwa tukipenda na tulilala pamoja tukizungumza Cha siri siri chakula cha usiku cha siri siri
Citing encouraged an analytical mode of thinking with emphasis upon lineality. Once more, I trouble is I keep thinking of improvements on these passages all the time. With emphasis upon lineality, continuity, connectedness. In other words, Writing was an embalming process that froze me. It eliminated the art of ambiguity and made puns the lowest form of wit. The expert is the man who stays put. Writing destroyed word linkages. The simultaneous quadrilateral of many left words have to be sacrificed to keep everything moving on its plane on one level. The word became the static symbol, applicable to and separate from that which is symbolized. It now belonged to the objective world. It could be seen. It was a thing. Now came the distinction between being and meaning. they behave toward each other. It changed systems of government and so on and so on and so on. Printing technology confirmed and extended the new visual stress. It provided the first uniformly repeatable commodity, the first assembly line, mass production. It created the portable book which men could read in privacy and in isolation from others. Men could now inspire and conspire. It was the print-oriented genius of the Western world that created an applied knowledge and technology unrivaled in human history, and learned to manipulate matter, energy, and human life by breaking down every useful process into its functional parts, then producing any required number of each part. You was feeling like he was lost in the bush, boy? Just as pre-shaped parts became components of, say, an airplane, human specialists became components of a great social machine. Mm. 
compartmentalization of occupation. Compartmentalization of occupations and interests bring about.
Flat Black Plastic on Mutiny Radio.fm.
something wrong. So somebody told him that, well, your wife was forced to stand and he turned into a dove, so he flew away. So now
young boys, what they always do is hunting. When they hunt, they hunt their guns. So, so many people were very jealous of this boy, you see, with this dog, because whenever he goes out, he could kill big animals. And this dog could kill big animals because it was so good. And another thing was this, this dog was so good because it was blessed by the uh, spirits. So one day they went on hunting and uh, so many people were jealous of this boy. They thought of how to kill the dog. So what they thought was, first of all, they hit the dog with a knife. After they hit the dog, then they will uh, skin it to make sure that it will not be, it will, it will not be alive again. And after they skin it, then they could bury it. So they did that one day while they were out hunting, the boy was not there, so they took the dog and they killed Machina. And so after they killed Machina, Machina was skinned, and after they skinned Machina, they killed Machina. So this boy was very sad that he could not find his dog, because he liked this, he loved his dog so much. So anyway, he go And then as he was going home, he was singing this song. Your guys
at BlackPlasticUnionRadio.fm. Donate some money to the station. Please. Thank you. Oh, wow.